Good evening, everybody. So, second day, and the stew is cooking, isn't it? Stuff is happening. I think I'll um, entitle this talk, Why We Sit, or maybe Why Do We Sit? (laughs) And What It Does, (laughs) other than driving nuts. I think when we really examine the situation, the real reason most of us come to a practice like this is because of our suffering in life. That's actually probably the truth. We come here because we're looking for an alternative way to live. The Buddha's great teaching pretty much centers around what he called the Four Noble Truths. The first of which, when I first heard it, I remember being so relieved. A lot of people say they get shocked when they heard it, but for me it was a relief. I thought, oh, I always knew that, you know. (laughs) There's suffering in life. I also remember when my first spiritual teacher announced to, to a group like this that it's quite normal to be depressed. Oh, good. <laughs> good news. Huh? Kind of, what kind of situation are we in when that stuff is good news? Hmm. There's suffering in life, the cause of it. He taught was our grasping, our clinging to everything, holding on tight, grasping. Then he also talked the good news that there is a way to be free of the suffering that's caused by our tendency to cling. And then it was the fourth noble truth was the Eightfold Path, which was a very specific kind of manual for living. But aside from being relieved to when I first heard the, the, the Four Noble Truths, what followed was something that's kind of typical for me, is years and years of, yeah, but why is it that way? <laughs> Always trying to figure it out. And I'm always cautioning other people about trying to figure it out. You know, you can't figure it out. It's a mystery. 
But over the years, moving into my eldership now, <laughs> Liz is 70 today. Happy birthday, Liz. She's elder than I am. Over the years, I've been increasingly fascinated by the situation that we all find ourselves in, this life where there is suffering and such longing, so much searching for relief. How come it's that way? What makes it that way? How did we grow into this being that we are? So in being a psychiatrist and psychologist and psychotherapist, it's kind of been okay for me to do that. We're supposed to. I'm, I'm here to tell you that I haven't arrived at any answers for sure, but the speculation is interesting, I think. And sometimes it's, it's a good idea to... Meditate or ponder, or that's a too heavy a word. Can't think of the word right now. Goes with eldership. Um, reflect on our nature and uh, what it is that makes us tick. And the thing, the phenomenon that has fascinated me most is the fact that around six months of age, when we come into this world as little babes, around six months of age, this curious phenomenon begins to happen to all of us. There's a part of our consciousness that starts having the notion that it's separate. It sort of moves away from the rest of us, splits off, and begins to elaborate on the idea of being independent, utterly independent, and utterly personal, personal, very, very separate from everything else, and definitely subjective. I call that movement away from the wholeness that I believe we truly are. I call that movement of conscious energy the development of the ego, the sense of separate I begins to happen around six months and, and continues to grow and strengthen and gets supported, hopefully, from there on in until adulthood. In fact, if there is a lot of obstruction to that, that notion of a separate I and uh, an integrity in being somebody, 
if there's a lot of obstruction through cruelty or, or uh, denial or non-recognition in the environment, and that separate eye has holes in it or is shaky and weak, it really predestines us to a, a, a difficult life. It's important that this happen, this separation, this split, in order for us to grow, even for us to, in order for us to grow spiritually. What is it, though, this, this ego thing that happens? The Buddhists, in the, in the scriptures, the Buddha uh, said it was a result of a mental factor called wrong view. I've always loved that. Wrong view, right? From the get-go, you're wrong. <laughs> you, you got the wrong idea. But the wrong view is absolutely normal in our case. It's what makes the whole thing happen in large part. With the separation of that part of the consciousness into the ego self, a whole lot of stuff begins to happen. Uh, First of all, as as soon as there's a self, there's also the other. Uh And as soon as there's the other, there's the possibility of danger. And there's also a deeply ingrained and deeply felt at some level sense of separation and disconnection that is our inheritance, actually, in this process. There's a with, with that, the growth of that sense of separation, which is maybe conscious or unconscious, but it's certainly there, comes um, also a tendency to try to become whole again. And there's this movement toward grasping and reaching out and holding on and, and, and being reactive to the world that arises quite naturally. And of course, you remember from the the Four Noble Truths, this arising of the separate self and the sense of not being whole anymore, which leads to the grasping, the longing, is, is the very root of our suffering. It's the very root of our discontent. There's always, as long as we're ego self, there's always this sense of not quite right yet, not quite total. Even our greatest happinesses have within them that kind of haunting, yeah, but it's going to be over in a minute. You know, It's never complete, 
And I think that's what the Buddha meant by dukkha, the suffering. It's, it's unsatisfactory in that way. And yet that's the way it is. The ego, you might even look at it as a, a contraction in space. It's a movement of energy in space, and it's a misinterpretation of reality, because in truth we are whole. In truth, our experience of separateness is our ignorance, actually. The, this ego development is the, becomes the vehicle for dual consciousness, and, and we live in a world of dual consciousness, where for everything that exists, there is a, something else. For every uh, force, there's an equal and opposite force. For every up or down, a black or white, a yes or no. You know, we live in duality. This is a world that's split down the middle. And so we fit very well here in that way. That ego self is the one, as I said, who grasps, but also pushes away. And, and in that regard, as, as tiny children, we start learning strategies based on grasping and pushing away. Strategies that are designed to help us manage the, the gap, manage the fear that bubbles up in the middle of that split. The sense of not all rightness. Strategies of survival that are psychological and, and psychosocial. And they're, they're developed from our very unique psychophysical point of view. It's a point of view. Some of us learn to be aggressive and out and extroverted as a way of getting along. You know, it's, it's if I shine enough and if I make myself clear enough and if I touch enough people, somehow uh, I'll get along and, and I'll survive. They won't, maybe they won't dislike me or maybe they won't come and get me. Or, and some of us develop strategies that are based upon being recessive and, and introverted. Maybe if I'm disappearing enough, and if I'm not forceful enough, I can kind of get overlooked, and nobody will bother me, and I'll be safe, you see. Safety is a prime issue. Safety always. We even go into professions, depending on our basic strategies. There are those of us who, from the very beginning of our training and our nuclear families have, have been learning how to be helpers. If we learn how to help people and, and be real nice and go around the world saving everybody, maybe they'll like us and we'll get by that way. And it, there'll be safety. Or some people develop uh, their intelligence to a great extent because if I'm smart enough, and I can really stay on top of it and know what's going on, I'll be able to survive safely because I can figure it out. You know. All kinds of ways our personalities, and I'm speaking of personality, which 
as you can see, is built upon a layer of fear, actually. It's what motivates us. All ways our personalities form in order to allow us to maneuver through this minefield that we find ourselves in. And for a child, very often it is a minefield. You look back on your your own childhoods. Can you remember being five, four, five, and six? Do you remember what it was like? There were moments of sheer terror, weren't there? Mm -hmm. There were moments when you felt so hurt, but you didn't understand what was happening, or why they were hurting you, or why they didn't understand you. There were moments when you were totally frightened of being seen, or coming out in front of people. People, adults maybe especially, were, were dangerous. Other kids were dangerous. If you look back on your childhood memories of being a very young ego, very often those memories will come to you as either ones of when you were really, really frightened or and threatened by a world that's mysterious and looming large, or periods when there were those moments of safety, when you could feel okay about yourself and kind of let go and expand. I remember when I was five, my, my grandmother and grandfather were German immigrants. And uh, I mean, this really does make me an elder. They had a farm in upstate New York, and they were totally self-sufficient on this farm. It was only 60 acres, but they, they uh, grew their own food and, and uh, had pigs that they butchered for ham and fat and lard and cows for milk and chickens for eggs and, and uh, fields full of wheat and corn and garden full of tomatoes and cucumbers. I mean, that's, they never went to the store except to take into town food from their farm to sell to the stores. And they were uh, really people of the earth. And I would stay with them. My mother and father would send me out there on the farm uh, every summer for a few weeks. And I have memories of those moments of safety there because my grandmother was a very, very large-hearted woman, and I remember um, she 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 had hair down to her her butt, and uh, it, it and she would wind it around the back of her head into something and braid it, and then wind it around. So she always had this big braided knot on the top of her head. And I remember nights at bedtime, she would take it down and comb out her hair. And, and uh, I slept on a couch in their, their bedroom, and she would uh, put a chair up against the couch so I wouldn't fall out of bed in the night. And, and then she would uh, teach me the Lord's Prayer, you know, Our Father who art in heaven. And we would go over it and over it and over it until I memorized it. And those were the sweetest moments because... I was loved and I was safe. 
and, and wake up at 5.30 in the morning and my grandfather had already done the chores and they'd be in the kitchen having breakfast, which consisted of pork chops and fried potatoes and fried eggs and, you know, pancakes and literally. And I would hear them talking in German and in the kitchen and I would wake up and it would just be delicious, you know. It was such a contrast to the fearful things that were going on in other places in my life. The little developing ego, it's very sensitive and very tender, very delicate. And often, at the earliest age, bears the the signs of uh, its sufferings and uh, the fears and terrors that are going to come later. The ego is... I call it the wanting creature. I actually got a poem called The Wanting Creature. If I can find it, it's not too long, but I may not be able to find it. Oh, here it is The Wanting Creature. The wanting creature is loose. All the time he leers behind, leers and lurks behind good thoughts and desperate bursts of hope. He corrals the unsuspecting and surprises everyone with his smart promises and chic ideas. The wanting creature, born within, living only to get out and wreak violent greed. Go after him. See where he hides with all the wreckage he drips from his fat and quivering jowls. There's nothing to lose. He's already destroyed last year's crop, and he's no friend to anybody. He only wants what feels good for now. And he tells you that that's all there is. Be careful that you don't believe him. He'll trick you every time. And then you'll have to start all over again. First, forgiveness. And then the resolve to go on, tiptoeing your way past his cave, hoping today is a day he sleeps. But you know... He's a very light sleeper. (laughs) That ego self is the one that ponders itself all the time. It's always talking to itself. That's the other thing that develops. There's not only the separation of the sense of separate self from the whole, but then that ego self splits and starts talking to itself. Parts. It has all kinds of parts sometimes, <clears throat> but usually two main ones. And the conversation tends to be a little negative. Mm. Here's a quote from a manuscript, an unpublished manuscript by a friend of mine, uh, a body psychotherapist and meditator, Will Johnson. It says, You're probably quite familiar with this most common aspect of mind 
it is the voice inside your head. Even though its pronouncements are silent and no one else can hear it, it still sounds like your own voice, but heard from a great distance. It provides a running commentary on your life and, leads to, and leans towards judgments and criticisms of self and others. Hopes, fears, desires, and aversions. Like a waking dream over which we have little influence, its pronouncements are largely outside of our control. It doesn't matter whether we want to be thinking its thoughts or not. It just keeps spinning its stories, oblivious to whether you're interested in it or not. Its speculations are almost entirely about the past and the future. It loves to create stories about past traumas or joys and future possibilities, and then to replay them over and over and over and yet over again. Yeah, it's familiar. Chogyam Trungpa, who is one of my teachers, actually a 20th century meditation teacher, dismissed the thought that there might be any real intrinsic value to these stories by wryly referring to them as subconscious gossip. <laughs> <laughs> It's the one, this, this little ego self is the, what ponders itself all the time. It's the one that fears. It has a right to fear. It has no security. You remember it's called wrong view. <laughs> it has no basis in fact. It has nothing to stand on. It's always anxious. It's always having to choose and have preferences and choose what might be best for it. This is good, possibly that's bad. I like this, I don't like that, I want to take this one in, I want to take that out. It's constantly selecting, very hard work. But it makes change at the the supermarket and it pays the bills too. It has that uh, capability. It's always also comparing itself. You may recognize this in yourself. It's always either being inferior or superior, mostly inferior, I think. Although there are some ego selves that go around being superior most of the time. But you're sitting here and your mind is wildly out of control and you're sure everybody can see it, all your thoughts. And you're sure your body is like totally grotesque and in weird positions. And then everybody around you, of course, is being enlightened, right? And you're the one who's not going to make it inferior, superior. It's always longing for something. And it's so insecure that it has an army of its own. And the army, the thoughts, are the ego's foot soldiers in this army. And emotions are its generals. I wanted to, um, going back to childhood a little bit, I wanted to uh, read to you a few examples of what little developing egos do when they contemplate uh, communication with the bigger self. These are little um, letters to God written by very young children. And you'll find them really sweet 
but in the in, inside of each one is the kernel of pain also. Mm. Dear God, if we come back as something, please don't let me be Jennifer Horton because I hate her. <laughs> Denise. Yeah? Dear God, do you mean for the giraffe to look like that or was it an accident? <laughs> Norma. <laughs> Dear God, instead of letting people die and having to make new ones, why don't you just keep the ones you have now? <laughs> Jane. Dear God, you, you hear it in there? It's so sweet, but also there's, they're earnest, they're serious. Dear God, thank you for my baby brother, but what I prayed for was a puppy. <laughs> Joyce. Dear God, I went to this wedding and they kissed right in church. Is that okay? Neil. Dear God, it rained for our whole vacation, and is my father mad? He said some things about you that people are not supposed to say, but I hope you will not hurt him anyway. You're a friend, but I'm not going to tell you who I am. <laughs> There's fear in there, you know. We're laughing, but that's, that's fear. Dear God... Please send me a pony. I never asked for anything before. You can look it up. Please. <laughs> Dear God, I want to be just like my daddy when I get big, but not with so much hair all over. <laughs> Sam. Dear God, I bet it's very hard for you to love all the people in the world. There are only four people in my family, and I can never do it. Dear God, we read Thomas Edison made light, but in Sunday school we learned that you did it. So I bet he stole your idea. <laughs> Sincerely, Donna. Dear God, I do not think anybody could be a better God. Well, I just want you to know that I'm not just saying this because you're God already, Charles. <laughs> One more. Dear God, maybe Cain and Abel would not kill each other so much if they had their own rooms. <laughs> it works with me and my brother. Sweet, huh? Yeah, they, they're totally in earnest. Well, getting on here, the... This ego-contracted self, this, this small self, actually um, the one that makes all the strategies and has to choose all the time and lives in anxiety, is felt constantly uh, in, the, in the physical body. It's always present with us, and it's felt as a sense of contraction and holding, a kind of ongoing felt pressure you may have noticed it uh, from time to time while you're sitting. 
it, when it gets really strong and you, you get attached to some idea of, or some sense of what's right or wrong, it'll even get painful. And it'll be uh, aching in your back or a clutch in your belly or tightness in your throat. That self-contraction is the egoic self making its, its uh, demands. You know. And um, there's a poem about that, uh, that contraction, that contracted self. And it's about a feeling of contraction in the chest. Uh, it's called The Soldier. The Soldier. He stands inside my chest and throat, a soldier at attention, holding the line, guarding the storehouse from looters. They came once and stole everything, every bit of trust, every reassuring touch, and all the spontaneity. Those days were long ago when intruders came and left their bloody footprints on my skin. Still that soldier stands, holding a musket, a feather in his hat. I try to steal a smile from him every day, but he knows his duty. I say, at ease. Soldier, at ease, soldier, as you were before strangers occupied the land, before my innocent heart was cut open like a ripe melon. He guards the scars, and every day I visit with my bouquet of tender attention, basket of appreciation. We touch each other with understanding, but he does not relax his stand for security. He has his duties, and I have mine. So, what does this all have to do with meditation? The end result of all this process that I'm describing is is that we live in a in a very disembodied society. You know, we sit in front of computers and watch television screens with with two dimensional images, and we're absorbed in materiality, and we tend to be out of touch with our physical selves because, for one thing all of that contraction over time leaves us numb. And the more the fear and anxiety and the more preoccupation with figuring it out and devising strategies, the less energy goes into actually feeling the reality of our existence, the actual being here of the body itself. We're, we're in a disembodied society. Someone asked Thich Nhat Hanh, the, the Zen master meditation teacher, what he thought of Western society, and he pondered that for a moment and said, lost in thought. Mm-hmm. Lost in thought. <laughs> what happens with uh, all of that subcontent, 
uh, subconscious gossip that I was talking about is that the more there is of that, the less there is of awareness of bodily sensations. They're inversely proportionate to each other. It's impossible to be feeling your, your physical being when you are lost in obsession. That's one of the things that happens is you, 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 you get separated from your sense of presence. And then, of course, more fear arises. And so we are a society of ghosts who are looking for their own bodies in large part. And in this, this room, all of you, us, compared to the vast majority of the population, are incredibly embodied and aware. You know? But most people on the street, you go out and look around, walk around without any idea of this physical presence. They, they manipulate it, they dress it up, and make it pretty, they have images of it, they make it move maybe, but really, very, very deeply do they feel it. How different is the world of sensations in contrast? The sensations of the body are so evanescent, changing, and flickering on and off at such rapid speeds that the only time we can have any real awareness of them is right now. Sensations express the mystery of life as it appears in this very moment, which is the only time frame in which it can appear at all. From the perspective of sensations, the past and future have no intrinsic existence. Sensations and the pattern of involuntary thinking are like children at opposite ends of a teeter-totter. When one is elevated, the other is in decline. Their relationship is one of mutual exclusivity. Either we become present, mindfully aware of the world of sensations, or we get lost in our thoughts of the past and the future. Certainly, our thoughts have great power, both negative and positive. And this is not to suggest that there's anything wrong with the process of thinking. How nice it would be, however, if we could enter into the process of thought consciously and creatively like a skilled cabinet maker who picks up the proper tool for his job and sets it down when he's finished rather than being at the unconscious effect of it. When we withdraw from the world of sensations, and unconsciously retreat to the more isolated chamber of our thoughts, everything becomes cooler and a bit dull in contrast. The fire of life that we can literally feel flowing through our veins goes out, and the world feels like a less hospitable place in which to live. So we come to meditation practice because of the the suffering of being out of balance, the sense of not being able to find out who we are, and rightly so, because our training in this culture is to be disconnected, not only from our sense of being, but from the body itself. Now the thing is that you can't experience thoughts really All reality that we actually experience is composed of what the Buddha taught as the four ultimate realities, which are earth, element, sensations of pressure, 
sensations of softness, hardness, and extension. The air element, the sensations of vibration and spaciousness and movement. Fire element, which bring us sensations of heat and cold and pain of various kinds. Burning. The water element, the sensations of cohesiveness, the sense of fluidity. Those elements in the Buddhist teachings, when they arise into consciousness and meet a moment of consciousness, say through, uh, through uh, hearing or uh, through touch, let's say through touch, when there is an arising of uh, the element of fire through touch, and uh, the consciousness and the arising of that element happen at the same time, then we are fully awake. Consciousness in this teaching is not a continuous process, but uh, a momentary event, moment to moment to moment, moving very, very, passing through very, very rapidly. It's not continuous. Our sense of it being continuous gives us this feeling of being... A, uh, a, a solid self. The air element arises and we're conscious of feeling of vibration or spaciousness or movement. Earth element arises and the, there's a sense of pressure and constriction, hardness or softness. And uh, he says, that's all there is, really. That to tack the idea of there being someone there who's doing that, creating it, or someone to whom it's happening, is actually what is the delusion. It's a little hard to get a hold of, isn't it? The other ultimate realities uh, he calls mental factors of greed or generosity. Hatred or love, goodwill, delusion or seeing clearly. And the fourth one is nirvana. <laughs> so this ongoing felt body sense, this presence of this precious vehicle, is what we pay attention to, as you've noticed in, in this retreat, very carefully in this practice, because we're out of touch with it. And when we do that, when we let the attention rest in the moment-to-moment -moment arising of the elements through, let's leave the elements out of it, through the experience of various kinds of sensations, more and more we become connected with reality, what it is that's actually happening here. More and more we begin to feel real. And as the practice continues, there is even this trend toward the realization that the observing witness and what's being witnessed are the same thing. They're actually the same. You know. And when that happens, this practice holds up the possibility of a movement from dual to non-dual consciousness and a realization of true self. 
the, real, the possibility of seeing the world just exactly as it is without anything in between. The world reveals itself just as it is. That experience has been described down through the ages many, many times. And it's the promise of this practice. It's the promise to you. And it's actually available, that movement from schism and separation and longing to a sense of wholeness as isness, Buddha nature. It's available to all of us, and it's true. The practice actually works. So it's, it's as I said, the first night we, we came together, we're so fortunate to be here doing this work because it holds out the very real possibility of becoming exactly what you are that you have intuited your whole life but have been somewhat always kept from realizing. And it isn't like that. Being kept from realizing is something that's happening to us. There also comes the realization in this practice that, that uh, the, the, the self-contraction is not an accident. It's something we're doing. This is the big realization before any of the others, actually. The self-contraction and separation that you feel is not inflicted upon you it's something that we're actively doing moment to moment. We're refusing to be whole. We're refusing love. We're refusing relationship. We're refusing to get it because of our ignorance. So, I'd like to Here's another one. I like this one. It's called Marvel. Where does it all come from? Where does it all come from? We don't know. We don't bring the breath or the beating heart or the inner sound of calling, that constant reminder that we're not permanent residents here but collections of memories and dancing elements, all on loan for the moment, so that a cup of tea, a deep sigh, the bowels twisting in their cavern are all events staged from some clever screenplay, staged from some clever screenplay written by nobody and acted by no bald old man sitting on a meditation cushion, smiling at the sweetness of such generous mystery, such wild imagining beyond anything anyone ever thought or decided to produce. We, we are beautiful strands of amusement, threads of momentary desire, indescribable twists in the wind. 
Okay. I hope you get the connection between the development of the ego and why we sit. We sit to heal, to allow ourselves to rediscover wholeness. We sit because we have to at this point. There isn't any turning back. So it's great that we're here. (laughs) What do you think? (laughs) Yeah. Well... The why the split happens? He, he said that's none of your business. <laughs> that was the last night, Chris. Uh-huh. He said it's none of your business. He actually did say that. He said, uh, don't bother. It's like the question people ask about trying to figure out emptiness, and the great teacher Ajahn Chah said, don't try to figure it out with your mind. It will just cause your brain to blow up. <laughs> it is the same thing. We can try to figure out that chicken or egg thing, but that figuring out won't set us free. I think that's why he said none of your business. So listening to your talk, it uh, rang so many different bells in me about my own journey, and what really it touched was um, about the suffering and the yearning and the longing that comes from the sense of separation and the extraordinary relief from when that separation is um, not what's happening. And there were two poems that came to my mind. Hmm. Unfortunately, these Rumi, I don't know it by heart, so I don't know where they are. Um, See if I can just quickly find the first one about. If you're familiar with Rumi, You know, he has so many poems about this yearning, this longing. And sometimes in practice, someone will come in and they'll say, oh, I'm, actually it happened today, I can't remember exactly, but oh, my mind is really busy. Oh, I'm being irritated at something or other, and the yogi next to me. And then we go, well, what's happening in your body? Well, kind of a tightness. Well, just be with the tightness. Well, there's this sadness. Well, there's this burning yearning. But we we tend to not, it's, it's so frightening for us to come into contact with the pain of separation that we can just live in the judgments and comparisons, everything you're saying. So sometimes reading sacred poetry like Rumi, where he's just, he's just a master of talking about the spiritual journey, and a lot of them are about this yearning. But I'm not finding, again, this is the second time, because there's literally hundreds in here, the one I'm after. But I can't find... You could probably just open it anywhere, actually. Yeah. <laughs> the, one I'm, the one I'm after is the one about being in constant conversation. Well, here's the, this has nothing to do with it, but I just saw it, and it's so beautiful. <laughs> do it. <laughs> but then I'm going to come back to the other poem. Be melting snow. This does have a lot to do with it. <laughs> Be melting snow. Wash yourself of yourself. A white flower grows in the quietness. 
Let your tongue become that flower. You can feel it right there. Your tongue. <laughs> He's so sensual. You know, yeah. He's really beautiful. I couldn't find the one in there about the longing, but I will, that, that reminded me in my own journey when I was thinking about the suffering in my life and how in the early years it, it really seemed that that suffering and, and, and to that ego it was about what she didn't give me or what he didn't do or about that rape or whatever. You know, that was, it's real. But as I went deeper and deeper, the suffering was the sense, and at that point it was separation from what I would call God. Why did I get left out? Why, did, why is that other than me? And as I went deeper and deeper into that, that was the yearning, and it ended up being the fire. And then um, there is, like Robert said, there's this extraordinary possibility for just everyday folks like us to live without that sense of separation from the infinite. So if you haven't met Hafiz, another of the great mystic poets, um, he speaks from the point of view often in this book of someone who is no longer separate. God, I'm having a hard time finding poems here. I know that I'm going to find this poem. If you have one in the meantime, Robert, you just read it, because I'm going to read this poem. <laughs> I'm not giving up on this. Because this is attachment. I got a quote. Okay. This is, this is a great one also. This is from Martha Graham. Many of you probably know this. But I, I do it over and over again, because it's so right on. Martha Graham, the great dancer. There is a vitality, a life force, an energy, a quickening, that is translated through you into action. And because there is only one of you in all time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium and be lost. The world will not have it. It is not your business to determine how good it is, (laughs) nor how valuable, nor how it compares to other expressions. It is your business to keep the channel open. You do not even have to believe in yourself or your work. You have to keep open and aware directly to the urges that activate you. Keep the channel open. Yeah? Sitting this practice is one of the things that really keeps channels open. There's many things, but for myself, I've found that really connects me with not being out so much out, well, what are they thinking, what's over there, but just this channel. Okay, speaking of the yearning for what's in the mystic poets called the beloved and or the reunion with the beloved, from the point of view of someone who's not in that suffering anymore. So it's the invitation to all of us. I am sitting on a mountain. I am casting shadows into the sky. Where do you think you will be when God is revealed inside of you? I am sitting on a mountain range. I am a precious body of living water. Why ever speak of miracles when you are destined to become infinite love? Mm. 
still the final grace was left for all of existence and for Hafiz to blend and to find that I am every pillow offering comfort to each mind and each foot. So that's the poem of someone who's no longer in the separateness. Here's one of somebody who is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll look for mine. Yeah. Still in the separateness. Dueling it's poem. called The Final Cut. And it has to do with listening to the sound of the Holy Spirit. I can hear you coming suddenly when thoughts stop. There you are. I listen to the thread of connection in the center of your sound and you fill me up. You appear from all sides. And then when the struggle ceases, you enter me like a soft mood and fill me with your nourishing food. You never fail me. It isn't your way. You serve. You serve. That's what you do. Carrying me farther to where the sun lives, and everything that arises out of you is blessed. You are the music that connects us all. You are the sound of love in a baby's ears. Your comfort and safety in lush gardens you are unspeakable and present always. Why do we wander around in this dense darkness so long when you are so near our heads? What is this story, always unfinished and full of tears? Do we stumble here on rocky ground in order to find you? Tear me apart with your sound. Mm. Rip open my heart and pour in your healing liquid. Remind me every moment of your ownership. I'm only waiting for you to make the final cut. Or will the end be just beginning and the cut be more a caress from deep within? I don't need the answers to any questions. Just come and do your melting business now. Mm. I can only live in you. There's no air to breathe elsewhere. No place where you are not. So let's do it. Take me away one more time. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So bless us all. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit 
dharmaseed.org slash donate.